The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Isaiah chapter 65 this evening. If your Bibles encourage you to open them up as we'll be navigating our way through this chapter verse by verse this evening. Uh, we again come to a very familiar theme something we have looked at recurringly over and over and over again as we have navigated our way through this book, uh, the judgment of God that is coming upon the wicked, and then the restoration, the redemption, the promise of a, a salvation for the faithful, for the remnant that turn to God, for those that trust in God. Judgment on the wicked and vindication, redemption, restoration upon those that repent and turn to the Lord, upon the faithful, those that follow the Lord, even in the midst of a, a wicked and crooked and perverse generation. Uh, time and time again we have seen this subject come up in the words of the book of Isaiah. You've got to realize, those of you who have been with us walking through verse by verse, or chapter by chapter at least as we have done, the writings of Isaiah were not all done at the same time. So Isaiah did not sit down and begin writing and within an evening write the book of Isaiah. Uh, these are likely a compilation of his proclamations and prophetic, um, um, prophetic words recorded throughout the span of his lifetime. And so this is a, a long, lengthy period in which all of these proclamations of judgment and promises of redemption and restoration occurred. But we have them now compiled together in this book and read through them. And there is a bit of a monotony in the repetition of these themes. The good news for those who are growing a little weary is we're almost on the last chapter. One more chapter in the book of Isaiah. The bad news is we're going to dive into Micah next, which is a contemporary, one who was uh, living around the same time as Isaiah, whose writing follows a very similar pattern of God bringing proclamations of judgment because of the waywardness, the sinfulness, the stubbornness of his people in their sin, as we'll see even tonight, uh, a, a description of their sins and a, a warning of impending judgment that was coming upon them. We'll see that theme along with the promise that God will have a remnant and God will restore Zion and God will bring deliverance and salvation and that God is sovereignly at work through all of this, even the Babylonian captivity uh, that was going to come upon his people because of their sin and hard-heartedness. And so just a, a word of really admonition as we even begin to look at this subject once again. We are thick-headed people, are we not? We look to this and we say, how could Israel have not heeded the warnings of God? How could those who were given these words of Isaiah not have repented, not have turned from their wickedness, not have turned from the sinfulness that they had embraced and, and repented and found God as a God who forgives and redeems them and even turns and, and turns away from the judgment He would pour out upon them? And yet we are the same people. <laughs> we have the same thick hearts that don't hear the word of God, the calling of God as we ought. And it's a word of admonition to us, even as we look to this again, uh, these the subjects again, to say, God, help me hear your word tonight. Help me not to be one who has a deaf ear towards the warnings of your word, but one who hears and one who leaves even here having been 
changed by the hearing of God's Word and, and edified by it and being a doer of God's Word and not a hearer only. Uh, the reality is there are two types of people in the room tonight. There are those who have truly come to God through Christ and are the children of God. You're born again. You're saved. Uh, you're one of the faithful remnant, as we will title them here. You're one of the few that have come to the Lord rightly in the name of Jesus Christ. You're, you're a Christian. And there are others who are in the room tonight who you've never come to Him. You've never repented and believed upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You were one who would be defined by God as wicked and rebellious and hard-hearted. Not because your life is more sinful than any other in this room, but because you have not come to God and received His grace and mercy. You've not repented. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. Uh, the difference between some of us is we've owned up to that sinfulness and we've confessed it before God and we've cried out to Him for His mercy and in His grace He forgives and redeems us. And so two types of people, even in the room tonight, two types of people are going to be addressed here in chapter 65. Those that are hard-hearted in their sin, those who are not hearing the call of God to repentance, those who continue in their idolatry and immoralities, contrasted with those who come to God with a broken and a contrite heart. Those who are the servants of God, not because of their own inherent righteousness, not because of their own self-righteousness, but because of their turning towards God and His grace and in His mercy and His promises. And they are the servants of the Lord. And so we'll look to those two subjects once again. Uh, first, I don't want to read the passage in full because it is lengthy. I just want to navigate through it as we make these points uh, for sake of time tonight. So first, first notice that God will judge the wicked. God sees the wickedness of the many and will judge them. God sees the wickedness of the many. Unfortunately, this is the majority in that day and age, and even in our day and age, broad is the way that leads into destruction. Narrow is that way that leads to eternal life, that leads to the kingdom. Unfortunately, many remain hard-hearted in their sin. Many of God's own people, even, that Isaiah is addressing, remained hard-hearted in their sin and did not answer the call of God to repent, to turn back to Him. And he speaks out clearly once again in this verse, or in these verses, to make known, God will bring judgment. That the sinner will not continue in his sinfulness forever. That even death itself is a finality to uh, an ending to man. To say, no, you shall not continue in your sin for as long as you desire living against God. Against God Almighty, God your Creator. And it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Judgment shall come, even though it seems the wicked are prospering. We'll see this in verses 1 through 7, and then we'll skip to verses 11 through 12 that reiterate this point. I want to just walk through the passage and then draw a little bit of application with each of these two points this evening. So let's begin in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 65. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. It's an interesting way that Isaiah starts this passage here, God speaking even through Isaiah, uh, about a people that were not his people, not even seeking him, and yet they are the ones who become his people. Uh, Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 10 and verse 20 in application to the church. That God is even speaking prophetically here 
in, in a little seed to picture what's actually going to happen at the full rejection of Israel when the Messiah comes, as they deny the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he's already prophesying it even back here in Isaiah 65. There will be a group who were not asking of me who will come to seek me. There will be those who did not seek me who will be found by me. And he will say to them, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. It's a, a prophetic um, verse speaking to what God would do through this church era in which we live this side of the cross, where even today on planet Earth, there are far more Gentiles who are rightly seeking the name of the Lord than there are ethnic Jews. Even still today, many ethnic Jews do not realize who Jesus Christ is. They are not rightly worshiping the God of their forefathers. They, they are blinded and in a, a state of dece- being deceived and not seeing God for who He truly is, not seeking Him for who He truly is. And there is a lot of Gentiles who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The majority of the church today would be comprised of those who are not ethnic Jews, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 65. In this word of judgment against the wicked of His people, He begins with this prophetic word that would be very offensive to them. Listen, there will come a day that that even the lost Gentiles will seek Me better than you are seeking Me now, Israel, in your idolatry and in your sin and in your wickedness. He says in verse 2, I have stretched out My hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. You want to know what wickedness is? It's walking in a way that is not good before the eyes of God. But there is a God, and He is the holy giver of all the the law. Everything that is right and wrong is defined by His very being, His very characteristic of who He is. God does make morality universal. It's not just a relative thing that you and I can make up and, and... you know, accommodate to any situation that we want to, to make a, whatever we want to do justified. No, God, God's the one who is the judge of all the universe. God is the one who is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong. Wickedness is walking in a way that is not good before the eyes of God. And God says, even as they've done this, I have stretched my hand out all day long to this rebellious people. It's not that Israel did not have opportunity to repent. I've said it many times before, but any time in the Word of God, the people of God received a warning of impending judgment. A warning of impending judgment is a grace of God. It's an opportunity to repent. If God, just as the message even to to Nineveh, in 40 days God's going to destroy the city. And it led to them doing what? Repenting. And the city of Nineveh turned to the Lord and God relented of the judgment He was going to pour out upon them without that word of of impending judgment, there would be no opportunity in a sense to repent. No confrontation, at least, that would lead them to repent. But any time they receive a word of impending judgment, it's actually a gracious act of God that He's saying beforehand, this is what's coming, and implied in that is, you better turn. You better repent. And when we do, we find God can relent of the judgment that He was going to pour out upon us. These people were not heading to the Babylonian captivity. 
because God did not give them any other option. They had every option of repentance. God gave to them Elijah and Elisha and all the divine interventions even through their lifetime. God gave to them uh, Isaiah and and all the other prophets that we've looked at even so far and a couple others we're yet to get to. uh, Words of of coming from God to draw His people to repentance and yet they remained hard-hearted. They remained rebellious. All day long, God stretching His hand out to them and yet... They would never never turn, never stop doing the wickedness that had become so commonplace. To walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. There's a good uh, modern day expression of walking in wickedness. Walking in our own thoughts. We will determine for ourselves what we are and what we do. and We don't need God to tell us anything. We don't need God to define anything. Walk in a rebellious way, a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. Verses 3, 4, and 5 really define for us their particular wickedness. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. And so there's no reverence for God. Um, they, They know there is a God and yet they don't care to obey Him. They don't care to follow His law. They continually provoke Him to anger by the actions of their life. What are they doing? They sacrifice in the gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. And so God said sacrifices to Him were to be done in the temple. They have no regard for the Word of God, for the commands of God, for how God says He is to be worshipped. They want to do it their own way, and they want to also worship all the gods of all the peoples around them, because who's to know, as we'll get at in a minute, maybe this god, Gad, or or this other god, maybe they have a power that, that we can manipulate to benefit our lives, and so we'll worship and serve and sacrifice to all the gods, sacrifice in the gardens, and they burn incense on the altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. Sounds a little creepy, doesn't it? They sit among the graves, even though under the law they weren't ever to touch anything that was dead, and they were never to um, commune with spirits of the dead, as even today some attempt to do in witchcraft and in speaking to the dead. And, and that's what this is implying here. They spend the night in the tombs. They sit among the graves. They were involved in all kinds of wicked Um, even witchcraft sort of type uh, practices, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. And so they had no respect for the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant law. I had a pork sandwich not too long ago coming up with Easter celebration out here on Palm Sunday. Were we wrong for having pork? It's swine. Uh, Thank the Lord, rise kill, rise, and eat, rise, kill, and eat. Uh, God, God, we have to filter the Old Testament law. I don't have time to divert into this subject is what that hesitation was. Because this is a longer subject, but we've got to filter the Old Testament law through the crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And so even the Ten Commandments, some people think in a wrong way, they're binding upon us in a way that is apart from Christ. And no, they're not. We must filter them through Christ, the New Testament application of how has Christ fulfilled, not eradicated and done away with, but how has Christ fulfilled the law? And therefore, in Christ, what is the law of Christ upon us? And so, even as far as the Sabbath, we don't keep the Sabbath on Saturday because Christ is my Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4. 
He has fulfilled all that has come before. And now I must ask, what does the New Testament command of me as a New Covenant believer in Christ? How do these things written in the Old Covenant apply to me through Him? And so the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, thank the Lord, I love a T-bone steak, have been removed. Um, I love a medium rare T-bone steak is where that would come in. Um, So swine... All the unclean animals in that day and age, Israel had no regard for the Word of God, for the command of God. Uh, they, they took what they liked, and they ignored what they didn't like. I, I would imagine they explained it away as a cultural appropriation of uh, a cultural norm back in Moses' day. And that's just for Moses and for the people immediately living in the era of Moses. It does not apply to me living in this day and age. It's a a great argument that is made today on much of the Word of God. Well, that was just for first century Christians. It was Paul's opinion. We have all a whole variety of explaining away the Word of God. And always have been masters of justifying our sinfulness in spite of the clarity of the Word of God which speaks to it. Um, As it is now, so it was then. They ate swine's flesh. They, the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. They had no regard for the commands of God that were to set His people apart. Uh, that was what primarily these even dietary restrictions were for, to set His people apart from all the other practices, practices uh, of these other pagan nations around them, that they would be salt, that they would be light, that all the people around them would see the God of Israel as the one true living God, that they could not care less about what God commanded. They did what they wanted to do, and they took what they liked about God and brought it, and they took what they didn't like and cast it away. Who say, verse 5, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. (laughs) (laughs) On all of their wickedness, and all of their ignoring of God's Word and even offering sacrifices to idols, they had a, a spiritual arrogance about them that would cast judgment upon others. I would imagine even the ones who were devoutly, truly trying to follow the Lord, don't, don't come near me, for I am holier than you. Flipping right upside down, where right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right. We look at the direction of our culture today and we think it's something new, something that's never happened before. It's new for the past you know, 80 years in our country of the United States of America, but this is not new for human civilization. This is not new for the heart of humanity. As it is becoming more and more so now, so it was then. An, an attitude of greater spirituality, of spiritual arrogance, in spite of the clear waywardness of their living, in spite of the clear disobedience of their actions before God, They claimed a holiness before others even. God says of that, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. This isn't a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. Maybe you're familiar with that imagery from the Psalms of even the right worship of God's people, that that it's a sweet-smelling aroma, a life even being well-lived before the Lord, a a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord that that is pleasant. Many of you have breathed in a big, big breath of smoke before. Ever had the campfire wind direction change? breathing fine, and the next thing you know, it's <coughs> it's what God's picturing here, that the, the life that they're living, 
It is not a sweet-smelling aroma in his nostrils, but a smoke, a fire that burns all day, an irritation, an aggravation before the Lord that will bring about his judgment. Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but will repay. Even repay unto their bosom, the, the most inner part of their being. Your iniquities and, your, and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains as incense to false gods and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom and to that innermost part of who they are. God will judge. Now, we may not see it in the immediate present or immediate future, but rest assured, God sees and He will judge. He will repay, He said. Go down to verse 11. We'll look at verses 8 through 10 in a moment when we think about the the remnant, the faithful remnant. But verse 11 turns back to the wicked and the judgment coming upon them. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, that being the mountain where the temple even was put. They're sacrificing on all of these other places, not where God is commanded, who prepare a table for Gad, that's a false god, who furnish a drink offering for many, that's another false god. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. It wasn't that God had not called, it was that they did not answer. Because when I called, you did not answer. And when I spoke, you did not hear. But did evil before my eyes. And chose that in which I do not delight. Those are some severe words. Those are some words that ought to have gotten Israel's attention. They're words that ought to get our attention tonight. Unfortunately, they did not get Israel's attention. But maybe tonight, as you think about the common perception of God, that He's a God of grace and love and mercy, that He is, but that He will ignore our sins because of that. That He is not. And you think that it doesn't matter how you live or what you do. It doesn't matter what God's Word says is right or wrong. You do what you want and you do what's right in your own eyes and justify it. And God's not going to care. God sacrificed His own Son to provide a means of redemption, to pay for our sins. Our sin is a big deal in the eyes of God. For you to cast it off as a light thing that doesn't matter in the eyes of God is foolishness. God will repay the wicked, He says. God will bring judgment. If you remain hard-hearted and rebellious in your sins, judgment will come. Even eternal damnation. Hell is a real place. It's a place that all who die apart from Knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, it's a place all will go who do not know the Lord. Proverbs 15 and verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things, all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. feel like the law and order bum, 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 should be playing in the background right now. Like you, you think it's something to stand before a human court and try to make a case before a human jury. Uh, imagine standing before God Almighty who's seen it all and who knows it all. Who knows the things I don't know. Who knows the things that you don't know about that person, that person. He knows it all. Every deep, dark secret. God sees it and all will stand accountable. 
for him. Judgment will come upon the wicked. But thank the Lord. Notice secondly, not only does God see the wickedness of the many and will bring them to judgment, God also sees the faithfulness of the few and God will vindicate them. Vindicate meaning show them true as His people. Establish them. I could put also in there God will redeem them, will restore them, will deliver them, will bring them through to the end. God will vindicate His people, the faithful remnant, the faithful few, even in this day, like Isaiah, a small remnant who were following the Lord, even as the vast majority were not. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. And so the imagery here is of a a cluster of grapes, and it looks like you should throw them all out. They're they're bad grapes. But if you've ever gotten a cluster of grapes and you see a lot of bad grapes, if you're living in that day and age especially, you're going to go through that cluster of grapes, and surely within all the cluster of bad grapes, there's a couple of good grapes that you can use, that you can get some juice out of. That's the imagery that's given, given here, that as... The new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. That even in the midst of a a wicked and perverse and crooked generation, even of God's own people, there, there was a remnant who was faithful. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. A promise even of the land restoration for the people of God. That they will be restored to the promised land. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. And Sharon is on one side of Israel, going east and west in the valley of Achor, on the, uh, by the Jordan River. It means the valley of trouble even. And God says, someday I will bring my people into a peaceful inheritance of this land for my people who have sought me. Go to verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat. And he's speaking to the wicked here, contrasting what he's going to do for his servants, the faithful remnant, in contrast to the wicked. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. Love that title of God. Not a God of deceit, not a God of darkness, not a God of distance, a God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the formal, former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. And now in verses 17 through 25, what we'll find as we're about to read it is a, a, a 
description of the new heaven and new earth, and even of the millennial kingdom that is uh, yet to come before that new heaven and new earth. Let's read. Let's read through these verses in their entirety, and I want to try to fit them as I see things unfolding in the future. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For this child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 year old, uh, years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, it's a promise of future restoration, a promise of a new heaven and earth, and yet it's also mentioning a child dying at 100 being a tragedy and the wicked living to 100 being abnormal. So there's still death seemingly occurring in this time frame. There's the building of houses and inhabiting of the, the land. A lot of people, uh, let me say it this way, there's a lot of difference, differing opinions as to how we fulfill what's written here. There are some throughout church history who have t- taken all of this as more figurative language to describe the blessings fulfilled within the church. And I think it's written far too literally Uh, to take in a figurative way all that is written here. Uh, But they explain it away by fulfilling it all within the church, figurative language representing truths fulfilled within uh, the New Testament church. Others try to apply it simply and only to the eternal state, but some of the things that are described here uh, don't speak of, not all of them, some of it does, the new heaven, the new earth, and the former things having been done away with, but then it's mixed with things that don't sound like they will be occurring in the eternal state. And so that leads others where I would land to say, no, this is ultimately speaking about the eternal state, but it's also mixed in speaking about a millennial kingdom. And you say, what do you mean a millennial kingdom? What are you talking about? Got a brief amount of time to hopefully enlighten your thinking on this. Flip first in your New Testament to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And then we'll make our way to Revelation chapter 20. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Paul is writing about the mystery of the church. That even though the the Jews have have not come to faith in Christ as a whole, um, God is at work even through their rejection to draw the Gentiles to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all about the mysterious sovereignty of God and all of this work. 
and there was an, uh, a misunderstanding. So then what do we make of the Jewish people today? Are they, you know, still God's people? Are they still saved? Are they still going to heaven? And Paul says, no, not apart from the gospel. It's only through Christ. For the gospel's sake, they're enemies. But for the sake of God's calling, uh, they're still God's people. And God's still working, even through their rebellion, to eventually lead them back to himself. And I think that's clear in what Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, that's dealing with ethnic Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so there's a time frame in which God's primary working through the gospel is dealing with Gentiles, those that aren't ethnic Jews, as it is today, who have come to saving faith in Christ, but when that time of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, um, th- there will be a change. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until that time, inferring that there will be a time in the future that they will come to see Christ for who he truly is. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he says in verse 28, concerning the gospel, they, that being the the ethnic Jews who are unbelieving in Christ, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of of the fathers. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, so that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And so that leads me to believe that when the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in, whatever time frame that is, I would equate it, whether we, we'll get to tribulation, we'll get to rapture, we'll get to uh, the return of Christ. When all that starts happening, there will in some way, shape, or form be something that God uses to draw his people back to himself, ethnic Israelites. I think this passage alone is what's prevented me from leaving my upbringing of believing in a future restoration of ethnic, ethnic Israel. Because it says when the fullness of the Gentiles have come, God's going to turn his people back to himself, I believe is this is what Paul is saying here, that there will be a future restoration for ethnic Israel. The callings of God are without repentance. He has made a covenant to ethnic Israel. He will bring that to fruition through Christ in Revelation 20. What I would say is this earthly rule and reign of Christ, when he returns prior to a final judgment, an eternal state. So Revelation 20. Revelation is a very difficult book, absolutely. But Revelation 20 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now again, some people take this figuratively to represent just a a long era of time, and some even equate it to the church age in which we are uh, living now, and they they don't take a a more literal fulfillment, uh, which is what I am proposing here. And so this isn't a view that I would say is worth even dividing church membership over, in all honesty. Um, This is one of the the more third-tier doctrinal 
things that we come to on, we can agree to disagree on how this is all going to unfold when Jesus comes back. As long as you believe in the imminent return of Jesus, and you do believe in a, a judgment, and you do believe of, of eternal heaven and eternal hell, uh, those are the big points that we know for sure. How we unfold all of this and put it together, uh, Charles Spurgeon would differ than our view that's common in our day and age in American Christianity, evangelical Christianity. Uh, many of ages past would have, many great men, preachers of ages past would have a differing way of putting these things together than we do. And so I do not hold to this dogmatically, but I do hold to it because it's what I see as I have studied the Word of God. And so therefore that's what I'm going to teach to you as we walk through um, these prophetic writings and even eventually the book of Revelation. And so it says there's a thousand year period that Satan is bound and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and put a seal on him so that he should, uh, should not deceive the nations anymore till a thousand years were finished. Um, but after those things, he must be released for a little while. Don't ask me why, but apparently at the end of the thousand year period, there's going to be a little bit of a uprising of the wicked and that will bring about the final uh, judgment ushering in the new heaven and the new earth. And verse 4, And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark upon their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And so there's a, a first, and then this latter resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And so you can keep reading through the chapter at a later time, but it, it pictures, if we take it more in a literal fulfillment, a thousand year rule and reign of Christ upon this earth. I believe in that thousand year period, what happens just prior to that thousand year period through the tribulation draws ethnic Israel back to God through Jesus Christ. They come to see a large majority of ethnic Israel comes to understand Jesus truly is the Christ and his atoning work at Calvary is truly what brings about our salvation and our redemption. And then in this millennial kingdom, God does establish them in their land as he has promised and he does bless them. Even as Isaiah 65 speaks of the blessing coming upon the covenant people of God. It is happening in the millennial kingdom. And yet we also read, go back to Isaiah 65. We also read in Isaiah 65, however, that the former things will have been done away with. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, this is all direct quotation of John in Revelation 21, which speaks not of this thousand-year period of Jesus, uh, rule and reign of Jesus on earth, but speaks of Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven. The eternal state where death is forever done away with and there's no more sorrow nor crying. What do we make of this? I struggled honestly for a while until I came to see a parallel between two things. Between this, what Isaiah is doing here, what I believe Isaiah is doing here, and what Isaiah does all over the place regarding the first and second return of Jesus. I don't have time to dive into it tonight, but if you've walked with us through the prophecies about Jesus' coming... You know, Isaiah, when he wrote about the first and second coming of Jesus, he wrote about them like this. And we have, they're, they're intertwined. He'll go from a, a verse that speaks of the sufferings of Christ, and the very next verse it's speaking about the judgment and the ruling and the reigning of Christ. And, and even the Jews and even the Old Testament prophets struggled to understand how is the Messiah going to be one who suffers, 
and, and dies to bear the iniquity of his people? And how is he going to be one who comes to establish Zion and judge the wicked and, and reign and rule? And we see it now clearly as we understand, well, Isaiah, looking forward, could not see the separation between the first and second coming. He, he sort of had a conglomeration of them both when he wrote of them and prophesied of them as if they were one event, and yet they were two separate events. First coming, he came as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He rode in a, a colt, a donkey, on the way to, to the, uh, Jerusalem. That second coming, he's going to be riding as a warrior on a white horse. He's coming to rule and reign and to establish judgment and justice. First and second coming prophesied all combined together. I believe what we see here in Isaiah 65 is millennial kingdom, earthly reign of Christ, and the eternal reign of Christ, new heaven, new earth, in the same fashion, kind of just intertwined together as Isaiah struggled to see the separation between the two, just as a prophetic foreshortening as he foresaw the, the two events of first and second coming all sort of intertangled. So the same is happening here as he writes about some things that are true of the eternal state and other things that are true of the millennial kingdom. All of that's a little bit deeper stuff. <laughs> Hopefully you tracked with me and you followed with me and you got an idea at least of where I'm going with a lot of these deeper things that we'll get into as we dive into Ezekiel and other passages that point us to the millennial kingdom and also point us to the eternal state and even an application for us as the church within the eternal state. God sees the wickedness of the many and will judge them. God sees the faithfulness of a few and will vindicate them. Just one more application for us in light of God seeing the faithfulness of a few and someday He will vindicate them. Keep calm and carry on. No matter what's going on around us, God doesn't call for His people to be irate, belligerent, crazy people all worried about how wicked everything is and how wicked everybody is and the way our world's going and the way our culture's going. I know too many believers who get in that tailspin. And all they do is watch the news and all they do is bemoan the way that the world is going around us as if God is not a sovereign God, a judge overall, as if God someday is not going to judge the wicked and as if God someday is not going to vindicate His people. He doesn't call us to be filled with anxiety and to be filled with fear. We should lament the sins of our culture and generation. It ought to affect us. It ought to burden us. It ought to even motivate us to speak the truth and compassion. But, but we keep calm and we carry on. We obey God and we follow His Word no matter what the culture does around us, no matter what they turn upside down as far as what is right and what is wrong, because we know God will someday judge the wicked and God's Word will stand and it will endure and His people will someday be vindicated. No matter what they do to us, no matter what they do to the church in the days that are to come, we stand calmly, we stand faithfully upon the revealed, inspired Word of God. We don't waver, we don't let the culture define what we're going to believe on this issue or that issue. No, we stand calmly and consistently upon God's Word. Psalm 37 and verse 38, For the Lord loves justice, and He does not forsake His saints. As we stand upon God's Word and faithfully follow Him in humble obedience, God does not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked, they shall be cut off. One more, Psalm 37 and verse 25, I have been young and now I am old. How many in here can say that? I have been young and now I am old, yet 
I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. No matter what happens in the world around us, we just stay calm and carry on serving and loving our Savior and obeying His Word. Galatians 6, 7 through 10, we'll close with this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we pray that You would help us to not grow weary in doing good. Lord, that You would help us to see You and to trust You and to know that, Lord, no matter how it seems, the wicked are prevailing and prospering. Lord, we reap what we sow someday when all is open before Your eyes. You will judge and You will redeem. You will judge the wicked and You will restore and vindicate the people who have turned to You in humble repentance, who are seeking You in humble obedience. So we pray tonight, make of us a humble, obedient people. And I pray that we would take heed to the warnings of Your Word. Uh, Lord, I ask if there be any in here who have never, never turned from their sin, never called out to You to save them, but they've continued in their own sin, thinking they've got it all put together in their own self-righteousness. I pray tonight they've seen they need You. They need Your salvation. Lord, they need what You did for them through Jesus so that they can not have the judgment that is rightly due upon them. And I ask that, Lord, You'd work in their heart that tonight they would turn and believe upon Christ their Lord and Savior. And Lord, work, we pray, even in this invitation, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.